He might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, I make no assumptions about your occupation, nor your ways, which, which, which are nothing to me. We're talking fairy tale romance, and we're talking, it is truth, but truth is not always appearance. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking, as I teased last week, what a goose! <laughs> oh my god, I knew you were going to reuse it too. It was either going to be that or uh, Christina Ricci's, yes, you have everything now. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good line deliveries in this movie. Some, some really, really good line deliveries. Everyone, we are discussing for our 250th episode, and to kick off spooky season, Tim Ooh. Burton's, uh, I'm going to say near masterpiece, Sleepy Hollow. Ooh. This is a good one. Yeah, I was actually thinking this is one of two action horror movies from 1999 that we have long planned to cover on the podcast, and hopefully we'll get to the other one next year. Oh, maybe so. Tease, tease, tease. Uh, no, I, this is a movie that I watched a lot in high school, and I yeah, yeah. I don't think I had seen it. I I truthfully can't remember the last time I watched this movie, but um, I actually really enjoyed it a lot. Probably the most I've ever enjoyed it on this watch, because oh. I kind of always forget this is a whodunit. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. And it, I will say, you know it's a whodunit, because the explanation is so fucking convoluted. Like, yes. why did we have to kill 10 people? People because this person and this person and that person and this. <laughs> well, I mean, I have a lot of questions about like why she even waits for the horseman to come kill Christina Ricci when she's clearly, ha- she clearly has no problem hacking other people's heads off, like her sister or her servant girl. But yeah, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of it a hundred percent holds up, but it was interesting looking at this a bit more critically because I was initially going to go into this episode headstrong, being like, "Here's my queer reading of Ichabod because he is an effeminate man." or he is like a feminized man. Mm-hmm. And so we can read him as queer. And then I started to think about it. And nearly every character in this movie is transgressing gender lines in different ways. And I thought that that was really fascinating. Like, I actually think this is a very well put together screenplay. I do too. And here's the thing. You're right. Like parts of it, you're like, oh yeah, it is. the mystery is a little convoluted. And why do we need this five minute monologue of Miranda Richardson explaining oh, why she did and how she fucking did. everything. Dude, what? I read some reviews. <laughs> Um, even modern ones that were like, yeah, like the, 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 it kind of like kills the film. And I was like, what? No, it's it so fun not. to watch her chew this scenery. <laughs> Folks, this is, it's Laurie Metcalf in Scream 2. Mm-hmm. And then I think this, because this is a powerhouse monologue. Oh, 100%. I think, honestly, the only thing we're missing is that she doesn't get to have like a fight or a scuffle with Christina Ricci yeah. or Johnny Depp because she has a horseman doing all the dirty work for, well, I mean, I guess Mrs. Loomis had Mickey, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Yes, Mickey, the Hessian stand-in <laughs> Scream 2. <laughs> Wait, okay, so dude, when did you first see this? Do you remember? Oh, I definitely saw this opening weekend in 1999. Ooh. I went on a double bill to the theaters. I believe with my father, we saw this and Tomorrow Never Dies, and it was a fucking good time. It wasn't Tomorrow Never Dies. God damn it. (laughs) It was The World Is Not Enough. The World Is Not Enough. I think I've done this before. I think you've actually corrected me off mic, which, you know what, makes it even better because I prefer The World Is Not Enough because if you want to talk about powerhouse female villains, 
that movie has one in spades. It, honestly, I hate that it's considered one of the worst Bond movies because I love it. So, okay, this was a movie I was not allowed to watch because I was 10 when this came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I 100% saw the trailer for this when I went to go see Jan de Bont's The Haunting because that would have come out oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. four months before this. Yeah. By, by the way, everyone, both the teaser and the trailer for this movie are Awesome. Really like, good. Really, 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 really good. good. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember it when it came to VHS, or maybe it was DVD by this point, uh, I was probably 11, and I begged my mother to let me see it. And I had a, a play date with a friend. So she was like, you know what? Your dad and I are going to watch this movie. If it's not that bad, we'll let you watch it. Mm-hmm. And I get in the car on my way back. My dad picks me up. And I was like, is she going to let him watch it? And he, he just looks at me like all sad, just kind of shakes his head and goes, no. Um, <laughs> there are 10 really gory murders in this. Although I would argue many of them are comedic. Oh, uh, here's the thing. I actually don't think it's that gory of a movie. There's some like, uh, there's some funny shit. Like again, when um, uh, Phillips's head spins around when he gets mm-hmm. his head cut off. Um mm-hmm. We do kill a child. I, my dad claimed that it was when the, at the very end, whenever the horse jumps into the tree and blood flies out, um, that my mom was like, Trace can't watch this. I would wager it was actually the suit, well, the pseudo, this is the sex scene we get between Miranda Richardson and Jeffrey Jones. Oh, come on. I mean, (laughs) he's basically eating her out while she cuts a slit in her hand and like rubs blood all over his face. And they're they're like barely even naked. Sure, but it's still like a sexy. I was eleven True. years old, <laughs> but there, I, mean, I, I did finally see this probably in high school. Um, and yeah, I it was definitely okay. I actually likened the mystery to this to the same one, and I know, and I know what you did last summer, where you're kind of like, wait a minute, <laughs> mm-hmm. he killed who, when, where, and why is he after them now? And but it was so much fun to watch this, really knowing the ending and remembering what like the motive was because Mm -hmm. I think it's actually really well put together. Yeah. It holds up in terms of her logic, like her version of it. There's at least one death where I truly do not understand why that person needs to die. And it feels awkwardly shoehorned in. Like we haven't touched base with this character in a couple of scenes. So we need to explain what the fuck happened to them, but it's not a deal breaker. Wait, who is it? Her sister. Oh yeah. (laughs) It literally feels like we can't let a witch in the woods still live because she's kooky. So we just need to kill her for reasons. She does say that she she killed her because she helped them. She helped Ichabod. She's like, by helping you and your master. Whenever uh, young Masbeth tries to like hit her with a big hammer or something. Sure. Sure. I think he hits her with a log. Yeah, but like I think he's like grabbed because it, it, it's in the windmill at that point. He's grabbed like what looks like Thor's hammer, I think, and is like getting ready to get her. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Oh man, but yeah. So, uh, what second Tim Burton movie? What's the number for Johnny Depp? Oh God, I have no idea. It's only two, and the other one is Tusk. Ironically. Oh, everyone, go listen to us talk about Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> and now here's the fun one: How many for Christina Ricci? I mean, we've done Yellow Jackets. Mm-hmm. Oh, Adam's Family Values. Okay, mm-hmm. that's two. That's all I know. What else have we done with her? There's one more, Cursed. Oh, right. That was a long time ago, though. It so was forgive a me. hell of a long time ago, yes. <laughs> Honestly, here's the thing. So this movie is a four and a half out of five for me. My biggest gripe is that I don't think Christina Ricci has anything to work with as Katrina. Ooh, yeah, it's a tough 
I was going to say, it's a tough role for her. It's not. She makes this look easy. It's that the character both has agency and yet also lacks agency. As I said, there's a lot of transgressing gender boundaries in this film. And in some ways, she's very much the damsel in distress, particularly at the end of the film. But the rest of the time, she does get to do these spells and she's guiding Ichabod. She's going into the woods with him. The problem is, is that when you reflect back on everything she does, they're all completely ineffectual. Oh, 100%. And also because I think she is meant to be a, a, a quite a big red herring. Right. Although I can't remember if I ever really thought that she had anything to do with this when I first saw this movie. But yeah. I think be- because of that, the, the screenplay keeps kind of holding this character at arm's length. So we don't mm-hmm. really get to know Katrina because she's supposed to be a mystery. Truly. And that is actually, so I'm I'm still going to advocate for Ichabod as a proper queer figure, yeah. because not only do I not buy the romance between him and Katrina, the ending is so fucking false to me. It's the film's biggest misstep when they go back to New York and there's a suggestion that they're going to form a happy nuclear family. <laughs> I scoff every time. Yeah. <laughs> well, even even Johnny Depp is on the record as saying like he wanted him. Well, A, apparently he wanted him to have like a big hook nose and like look quote unquote ugly because I guess in Washington Irving's short story, he is described as not the most attractive person in the world. Yeah. I don't think that we need further accusations of like racism and yeah. anti-Semitism <laughs> from Tim Burton though. So that's probably a good thing. We didn't go there. Yeah. But he, but he did say like, he, he says that, Oh yeah. I, I, Ichabod is very effeminate. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. so like it clearly was a conscious decision on your part. I actually think this is the most attractive Johnny Depp has ever looked in a movie. <laughs> I think he looks pretty good. Yeah. I mean, he's very pallid. So it is evocative of Edward Scissorhands. And even the hair looks a little bit similar. Mm -hmm. But I think it's in keeping with the visual aesthetic of the film. It's hyper stylized in that sense. But yeah, Pete does cut a good figure. And yes, folks, in case you were wondering, we do not condone Johnny Depp's behavior. He's not a great guy. We know all the details about him and Amber Heard, who is also not a great person. And let's fucking move on. Honestly, when that trial was going on, I was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> I was just like, I don't need to know this much about any celebrity. And I think they're both bad people. Well, <laughs> so I actually thought this is a, I, I always thought that this movie was like the brainchild of Tim Burton. Not the case. Joe, in 1993, Kevin Yeager. Does that name ring a bell for you? Oh, baby, you better believe I was jumping off the couch when I saw that in the credits. <laughs> Everyone, in case you don't know, Kevin Yeager is a, a very famous makeup effects designer. Uh, you know, he, mm-hmm. he was in charge of the puppetry in the original Child's Play film, but he's done tons of horror makeup effects. He, by 1993, he had turned to directing with an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Mm-hmm. What else? What else? Um, what else did he direct? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you Hellraiser Bloodline, but he would not tell you that. <laughs> My man. Everyone go listen to our episode in Hellraiser Bloodline, where, of course, he disowned that film. It is an Alan mm-hmm. Smithy film, even though that is Kevin Yeager's sole feature directing credit. Look, man, I'm just saying it. We're getting the work print this month. So I'm super fucking excited to check out what that looks like. We're going to have to do another uh, like a special episode on that, maybe for the patrons. I was going to say, Brian Christopher has already indicated interest. He's like, you will have me come back for that, right? Because it's the only one you haven't had me on. Like, okay, Brian. Okay. Well, anyway, so Jaeger, he got the idea to adapt Washington Irving's short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And through his agent, he was introduced to screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker. And Walker, 
by this point, he hadn't really done a ton, but he would go on to mm. write films like Seven in 1995 and 8mm whenever that came out. <laughs> wow, good research there, Drake. I don't like that movie. <laughs> it's a really bad movie. <laughs> it is wild. I didn't realize he was responsible for 8mm. I mean, maybe no one is truly responsible for 8mm, but it's weird that he's the man behind Seven and 8mm and not just because they're both numbered titles that follow sequentially. I can't believe he didn't write the musical Nine. Or the movie, the CGI movie Nine. <laughs> what about Six, the musical? <laughs> I don't. Oh, oh my God! There is a musical called Six. Ah! Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they spent a few months working on a film treatment that, well, again, well, transformed Ichabod into what he is in the film. He's not a schoolmaster anymore. He mm-hmm. uh, he's a banished New York City detective, and. They pitched this version to studios and production companies, eventually securing a deal with super producer Scott Rudin. I feel like even in my film school days, like Rudin was always the go-to. Like if so, you were talking about a producer, mm-hmm. Rudin was the name that was brought up. It was like him and Joel Silver, right? Mm-hmm. For a period of time. Yeah. Well, by this point, though, Rudin had already seen Walker's unproduced, at this point, spec script for Seven. And he was like, yeah, sure, I like you. Uh, go ahead. Let's do this. So... <laughs> Rudin optioned the project to Paramount in a deal that had Jaeger set to direct this film with Walker scripting, but they were going to share story credit. So following completion, or should I say, quote unquote, completion of Hellraiser Bloodline, Jaeger had planned Sleepy Hollow as a low budget um, production. Uh, His words, a pretentious slasher film with a spectacular murder every five minutes or so. And I don't know why anyone would describe their work as pretentious. Pretentious? (laughs) I guess maybe that's an early version of Elevated? Oh, maybe so, but it's low budget. But nevertheless, um, Paramount disagreed with this concept and demoted him to prosthetic makeup designer. <laughs> oh my god. That is a huge demotion, by the way. From yeah. director all the way to, okay, well, you can do the FX. Which is no shade on the people who do FX. It's just... You know, this was going to be a director credit. Well, here's the thing, though. I And this isn't I couldn't find this in any of my research, but I do wonder if he was deemed difficult during the Hellraiser bloodline process and mm. word had spread. I mean, granted, I'm not saying he's difficult, but because, again, he Alan Smithy did. Right. I wonder if that's like bad blood, like that kind of like blacklisted him for a while. Yeah, even just, oh, you've got the stink of you on a film that should have been a guaranteed hit because it was a franchisee film. And here you are, you know, having to walk away from it. What went wrong? We don't want you on this. Basically, yeah. So, but but also, too, I mean, think about this. You know, this is 19, well, the mid 90s by this point. So the horror genre, A, is not in the best, like, stance. Uh, And also, I guess because it's based on, like, a classic short story, be it horror or not, they were like, Mm -hmm. oh, like, American literature. So they were thinking it was going to be something like The Crucible, like, in style and esteem. Which is interesting, though, because it makes me wonder if that's also why he was calling it pretentious, because it's based on on banned literature maybe but i guess then like the idea of like oh something quote-unquote classy like that with a low-budget slasher production it just mm-hmm. it, it wasn't working with the studio <laughs> i mean to me the real red flag is spectacular deaths every five minutes sir that sounds exhausting well okay but here's the thing though i'm really trying to figure out how like the variety of these deaths if we're just cutting off heads which maybe right. we weren't just doing that because i mean this movie has some variety but it is mostly heads getting chopped off but the way we get to it is often a little bit different each death yeah yeah i mean and this isn't uh, this is one of tim burton's only r-rated films and it is rated r for strong graphic horror violence and gore which mm-hmm. 
I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised because, you know, I mean, look, I'll go into this in a bit, but like Hammer Horror was a big influence on this. And oh, for sure. The blood looks like paint. And honestly, yes. sometimes it looks very silly. <laughs> it's true. That's part of the reason why I think this movie works so well for me is it almost has a campiness to its visual mm-hmm. aesthetic. You know, as I said, hyper stylized because it's a Burton joint. But then... So much of the gore and the death feels like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing, especially when we're spraying Johnny Depp and Miranda Richardson in the face with blood half the movie. Constantly, constantly. But nevertheless, so, you know, Jaeger's demoted on this thing at like 95, 96. Scream comes out December of 96. And then all of a sudden, horror is a thing again. Right. Cut to 1998, uh, Paramount CEO Sherry Lansing revived studio interest. Uh, producer Adam Schroeder, who helped Tim Burton with Edward Scissorhands, he suggested that Burton direct the film. Well, Francis Ford Coppola got involved. (laughs) So his company, American Zotrope, came on uh, to do some minimal production duties. Um, And then, of course, this is a company that he had co-founded with George Lucas. Well... By this time, Burton was kind of exasperated because he was coming off of the troubled production of Superman Lives, you know, the famed one that was going to have Nicolas Cage as Superman. Yes. So they hired him in June of 98 to direct Sleepy Hollow. Um, And he was kind of happy about this because he was like, well, I've never really directed a horror film before. Like the closest, I mean, would be Batman Returns, which many parents would say is a horror film, but he didn't think it was. (laughs) Okay. His interest in directing a horror film uh, was influenced by his love for Hammer film production, specifically the film Black Sunday. He liked the supernatural feel they evoked as a result of being filmed primarily on sound stages, which is interesting Mm -hmm. because at this point, the plan was to do actual location scouting for this film. Yeah. And I do think that filming on the set is one of the things that makes this film pop because it had so much stronger creative control over the elements. Oh, this film, the production design for this film is immaculate. It's stunning, yeah. honestly. It's so good. But yeah, so as a result, though, yeah, this is this movie's an homage to various Hammer film productions. So I said Black Sunday, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde was a named reference, which I loved. Oh, hey. Non-Hammer films like Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, um, mm-hmm. obviously the windmill. Like I was going to say, that fucking windmill where you're just... <laughs> yeah. Where did that come? Oh, okay, yeah. We're just doing that. Um, mm-hmm. Roger Corman films. There's some of your camp factor. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Scream Blackula Scream. And fun fact about Burton, though. So he had an apprenticeship as a Disney animator at Cal Arts in the early 80s. And one of his teachers worked on the 1949 Disney animated version of The Legend mm-hmm. of Sleepy Hollow, which... Funnily enough, that was actually my introduction to this legend. I had a VHS 100%. tape with that in the Wind of the Willows. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like you're not alone in that at all. That was my introduction to it as well. I've never read the story. I only know it from the Disney version. You know, I was going to read it because, okay, so um, everyone, a uh, plug, I didn't get paid to do this, but I did buy the uh, <laughs> the new 4K steelbook of Sleepy Hollow, and it actually comes with a copy of the short story in book form. Oh. Nice. So okay. yeah, I was going to read it, but then I didn't. Uh, <laughs> great story. Tell that at all the parties. <laughs> anyway, but no, but this teacher that Burton had worked on that Legend of Sleepy Hollow cartoon, so he brought in some layouts from it for Burton to reference. And it was mm. one of the things that kind of shaped the look of this film, which is why I mean, you know, I don't think we would have had the, um, the, the horseman throwing the flaming jack-o'-lantern without right. that. Yes, yes, yes. 
So Burton worked with Walker on rewrites, but Rudin, uh, producer Scott Rudin, suggested that Tom Stoppard, who had recently co-written Shakespeare in Love, <laughs> mm-hmm. rewrite the script to add the comical aspects of Ichabod's bumbling mannerisms and emphasize the character's romance with Katrina. But because of the WGA screenwriting credit system, uh, his work went uncredited. Wow, that is interesting because now that you've referenced Shakespeare in Love, which is a film I absolutely adore, mm-hmm. I can definitely see the com- I can definitely see the comedy overlap. Oh, uh, and it's honestly he's really funny in this movie too. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. he, Johnny Depp is really funny in this movie. Yeah. I think that the biggest laugh I get is whenever he, you know, finally sees the horseman and Michael Gambon's like, "Yes, we told you. Everyone told you." <laughs> <laughs> no. But I saw him, and he was dead. Yes, we know. <laughs> and then he faints. <laughs> I will say, though, for Don- – so the studio wanted Burton to consider either Brad Pitt, Liam Neeson, or Daniel Day-Lewis for Ichabod Crane. But Burton was like, um, no, we're going to do I've got Johnny a leading Depp. man that I work with frequently. Well, so going on, though, so this is an exact quote from Depp about Ichabod's characterization. So he said, I always thought of Ichabod as very delicate, um, a very delicate, fragile person who is maybe a little too in touch with his feminine side, like a frightened little girl. I don't know if I like the phrasing of that. Yeah, I found another one where he describes his character as a wreck a prepubescent girl and i don't know that that's any better well and so again totally random here because we're, we're talking about haunting in venice this month on the patreon but he took inspiration by angela lansbury's performance in death on the nile for his characterization of ichabod hmm, okay i mean here's the thing there's nothing wrong with being a man who is a little bit more effeminate who has the qualities of a woman like you and i would never fucking say that so it's not a big deal I think it's just more when you read between the lines or maybe you're just reading the lines. It seems clear that Depp doesn't look at that as a positive attribute. Well, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a little too in touch with his feminine side. What, mm-hmm. like why that, is that a bad thing? Yeah. why? Yeah. Just say he's really in touch with his feminine side. Like that's all you got to say. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh, also, though, he did take inspiration from some of Roddy McDowell's acting, and I couldn't find the specific hmm. reference, but I would find it very easy to believe if he was modeling it after Peter Vincent in Fright Night. Possibly, or possibly uh, Roddy McDowell from The Legend of Hell House. Gotcha. Well, I, I haven't seen that. So if he plays kind of a bumbling feminine idiot, uh, then yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit. He's not an idiot, but he is, uh, he's more in touch with his feelings, let's say. Sure. Okay. So they were going to shoot this with a $30 million budget. And I mean, what? That's 1999 money and 1998 money. So maybe mm-hmm. like $50 million in today dollars. I'm going to say 60 to 70. I'll look it up while you keep on. Sure. Um, well, here, final budget is 70. Well, anywhere from 70 to $100 million. I found two different quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it was closer to 100. I'm wondering if they're included. Because sometimes uh, when you find different budget numbers, sometimes they include the marketing or they add the $30 million for the right, marketing, you know? Right, right, right. Anyway, um, so they were going to start filming in October of 98, and they were going to, they scouted through upstate New York along the Hudson Valley, but while all the locations they scouted had a wonderful quality to them, according to production designer Rick Heinrichs, they didn't lend themselves to the sort of expressionism that they were going for, um, which was expressing the feeling of foreboding, because, I mean, you know, there's not a million gallons of fog anywhere in these places. Right, yeah, Exactly. So then they started scouting in Massachusetts, and they considered some, like, Dutch colonial villages to use in the northeastern U.S. When no suitable location could be found, um, coupled with the lack of readily available studio space in the New York area, um, Scott Rudin was like, well, hey, why don't we go to the U.K.? Okay. Hmm. Right. 
by the way, 30 million would have been worth uh, 56 million. Oh, God. Okay, so not quite double, but almost there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so Rudin was like, hey, Britain's got this level of craftsmanship and period detail. Uh, Painting and costuming is suitable for the film's design. And Burton had also filmed Batman entirely in Britain. So he was like, yeah. Also, if you're going to model a movie after Hammer Horror, why not Mm -hmm. film it in Britain? Yeah, go back to the motherland. <laughs> so uh, as a result, principal photography was pushed back to the end of November of 98 uh, at Leavesden Film Studios, which had recently been vacated by Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which is funny considering Ian, Ian McDiarmid uh, <laughs> is yes. in this movie. Oh, man. So many British thespians in this one. So oh, many yeah. good ones. Uh, it took them three months to build the town of Sleepy Hollow from the ground up inside the studio. The majority of filming did take place in Leavesden with other work at Shepperton Studios. Studios where the massive, you know, Tree of the Dead was built. Production then moved to Colden Falls State, Hambledon for a month-long shoot in March. And then, yeah, they 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 shot this movie, though, all through April. So, like, from November, like Thanksgiving, to April. Yeah, that is long. But this is a big-budget film, right? I mean, we know when this comes out, and this was peak holiday season. So they intended for this to be a big film. Yeah, I do wonder, though, if, like... Because, I mean, this comes out in November. I'm surprised... I wonder if there was ever an intention to, like, release it in October... But maybe they were like just because they were working with digital effects with ILM and stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. This, I'm assuming you're going to tell me that this opened in and around Thanksgiving in November, like mm-hmm. American Thanksgiving, not Canadian, because yeah. that would have been October. But uh, they they typically look at that as the start of the holiday season. And they use that as a springboard because it's, you know, a really good long weekend where a lot of families will go out. So you can do a kind of four quadrant blockbuster and then play all the way through the holidays, which this film, I think, does because it makes a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. It's not a huge hit, but I'll get there. Okay. So originally, Burton wanted to film this in black and white and and, and in old square academy ratio. So it would have been like... No. The, uh, the lighthouse, but like in 1999. <laughs> um, the studio said no. So they opted for a monochromatic effect, which is why like you know, there is color in this film, mm-hmm. especially from the blood. But that's why it kind of looks like a colored black and white film in some part in some scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fun fact, so this is 1999, uh, to promote the film, Paramount Pictures made a website for the film, which at the time was considered pretty novel. Variety described this website as the most ambitious online launch of a motion picture to date. Uh, it was sleepyhollowmovie.com, and Ooh. it was it, basically it offered visitors live video chats with several of the filmmakers hosted by Yahoo Movies, and enabled them to send postcards, uh, view photos, trailers, six-minute behind-the-scenes featurette edited from a mm. broadcast that aired on Entertainment Tonight. Ex- Extensive tours of the 10 sets were offered um, where visitors were able to roam around photographs, including the sets for the entire town of Sleepy Hollow. Apparently, websites like Ain't It Cool News and Dark Horizons were the reason this the studio decided to spend so much money on this website. Really? Mm-hmm, because they were taking off. Right. I mean, it's disappointing knowing the yeah. history of Ain't It Cool News. But yeah, I mean... I remember back in this time where we really started to leverage the power of the internet and what you could do to create a buzz with a website. And now, of course, it feels like we're living in perfect blue where people don't know how to log in on something. Well, also, the when this would have come around, because Blair Witch was July of 99, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And that was a big internet campaign. So I wonder also, that, yeah. that's all happening while they're in post-production of this film. Right. Yeah. 
So anyway, but yes, uh, Sleepy Hollow was released the weekend before Thanksgiving on November 19th, 1999, with the only other new release that weekend being the much maligned but secretly awesome James Bond film, The World Is Not Enough. <laughs> they both did well, people. They both did well. Yeah, no. Uh, so, so Sleepy Hollow out of its first weekend grosses $30 million, placing it in the number two spot. Uh, the World Is Not Enough, though, just, I mean, just, it only made $5 million more, so $35 million. Mm-hmm. But then for Thanksgiving weekend. So this is kind of fun because a lot of movies come out that Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So right. there's like the five-day week numbers, the four-day week numbers, and then the actual mm-hmm. weekend numbers. But that week, oh my god, this is wild. Toy Story 2 comes out, which of course Ooh. is a juggernaut. Huge. The other big film that comes out, and I am shocked by this, is the Arnold Schwarzenegger hell movie, End of Days. Boy, we had been prepping for that for over a year. Really? Well, not like we collectively, because it was uh, touted as his big return to film. Uh And they released, I want to say, the first teaser trailer a full year in advance. Oh, Jesus. So, hey, fun fact. I've never seen this movie, but I remember, I I think I've said this before, but in case I haven't, my mom watched it. (laughs) Oh, boy. And she watched it with one of her, because at the time she was teaching preschool at this Baptist church, and her and her friend just kept telling me, if anyone watches that movie, they are going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic, given that's basically the premise of the film. Oh, well, I, th- I think it's just so much yeah, about hell that it was very much like that. So I've never seen it, but I've always been morbidly curious. Like that and Stigmata and Bless the Child are like my trifecta of like turn of the century devil movies that I want to see. Oh, oh, wait, you've never seen any of those? No, never seen any of them. Okay, so Stigmata is secretly really good. Mm-hmm. It had a very rocky reception, but, you know, I think Patricia Arquette is doing some really fun stuff in that film. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the best film you'll ever see, but it's definitely worth watching. Bless the Child is bad, not fun at all. And then this one is kind of in the middle. It's campy. There's, like, the devil. I can't remember who plays him, but campy. Dude, so I, when I was doing research for this, you know, I gotta get my rabbit holes. Um, do you know who directed Bless the Child? Oh, I do know this, but I can't remember, and I'm gonna gasp when you say it. It's Chuck Russell, the director of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and the Blob remake, but he also yeah. directed um, Eraser, too. See, I love Eraser. Oh, Eraser's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Sleepy Hollow um, goes on to gross $101 million domestically and $106 million overseas, so we're looking at a worldwide total of $207 million Again, against a production budget of either seventy million or a hundred million, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's profitable. But I don't think it was maybe as much of a hit as Paramount right. wanted it to be. I mean, also, it's an R-rated horror film, so I <laughs> release it Thanksgiving. I think they thought because it's Tim Burton, it's Thanksgiving, it's Johnny Depp. Like we've got all these recognizable people. And that release date, I think they thought they had something. The lack of legs is a little surprising. But as you say, if you look at this as a horror film, then yeah, you know, we squeaked out past 100 million. That's true. I mean, well, I guess this is 99. So this is after Scream 2. But Scream 2 has got that $24 million budget and it makes about the same amount domestically as Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. When When you do that comparison, it does not look very good. Yeah. But I mean, again, if the original budget was meant to be 30 million and it ballooned to 70, because they had to go to London. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. Anyway, um, critical reception leaned positive. We're looking at a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.4 out of 10. It's got a 65 out of 100 on Metacritic. Uh, Cinema score audiences gave it a B minus. I'm a little surprised by that, but I, I also wonder though if like the, I'm going to say confusing aspects of the mystery maybe right. com- like were frustrating some people when they walked out. 
too complicated. Very much so. Um, Letterbox users, however, have given it a 7 out of 10. There we go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I think we're skewing the average up a little bit because this is definitely a four and a half out of five for it's me. It's just, I honestly, when I finished watching it, I wanted to watch it again. <laughs> it's just, it's a real good time. It's definitely a comfort horror for me. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's it's just, uh, it just bathes you in that Halloween spirit. Yeah. I mean, honestly, kicking off October with this feels right. Right. We don't have a theme this month, right? We're just doing like fun horror th- like Halloween things. Yeah, we're we're in between themes because we do have one coming up for November, but I will say it's definitely less fun than erotic thrillers. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, um mm-hmm. Joe, what happens in this movie? <laughs> Okay, so we open on close-ups of the will of Peter Van Garrett, who is played by an uncredited Martin Lando, who I definitely forgot was in this movie. And this is also one of the few scenes that was actually filmed in the States. Um, They had to do some reshoots at the end of filming, and so they filmed this part in Yonkers. See, I wonder if that's why he's uncredited, because they just kind of pulled him in at the last minute, said, hey, we're just going to do this thing. It's going to be great. You'll be out in a day or two. I guess. Um, Nevertheless, if you think this movie is going to pull its punches with its decapitations, um, it doesn't. (laughs) No. So this, this is basically just a cold open. He seals this will... We sent it by stagecoach across these spooky cornfields. And mm-hmm. then he and his son, who is played by uh, Robert Sella, are both immediately beheaded. Oh, is his son the one who's driving the coach? Yes. Oh. But it's very confusingly explained later on. <laughs> That's what I, I, I just assumed that this character died off screen. I didn't, because I was like, why don't they have servants to like, <laughs> to mm-hmm. drive it for them? Like coachmen? But you have to remember, they're trying to keep this all very hush hush. Right. Um, I will say that it, it always makes me laugh. So whenever Van Garrett gets decapitated by the um the the jack o' lantern scarecrow, it's mm-hmm. such like a a lazy toss of blood splatter that hits the face of this jack o' lantern. Hundred <laughs> percent. It's some PA who is making less than minimum wage who had a handful of blood and just went. Ugh. Which I do wonder if that's a hammer component though, because I feel like I've seen a similar blood splatter in some of the hammer films we've covered. Hmm, maybe. As as we've noted before, folks, Hammer is not our forte. So if people have any insights on what we're missing throughout the course of this episode, get in touch. Sure. So we cut to New York City. It's 1799, Trace, on the cusp of a new millennium. Mm -hmm. And this is where we are introduced to Ichabod Crane, who is played by Johnny Depp. And he is out there protesting the medieval conditions of both police work and jails. He's an innovator. He's kind of a scientist. Nobody likes him. Uh, Also to think that he's going to be doing From Hell in two years uh, after this. Like, Mm -hmm. honestly... I really like From Hell. Good one-two yes. punch for Johnny Depp doing period pe- like period horror pieces. Which are properly gory. Yeah, uh, From Hell is... Oof, boy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So he is looking to avoid the wrath of the High Constable, who is played by Alan Armstrong, as well as the Burgomaster. And I tried to look up and see if this character, who is played by Christopher Lee, has an actual name. And no, he is just named by his title. Well, and speaking of Hammer Horror connections. Oh, 100%. You have to think that this is their tongue-in-cheek, hey, 
we know that you know what we're doing. And it's like a Taylor's oldest time with this whole storyline, right? Like, oh, he he wants to, like, change the ways because they're just, like, throwing people in dungeons and pits and shit. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, use my science. And they're like, no, go to Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> yeah, I will say, I do love the idea of cells in the floor where we're just lifting the grate up, tossing people in. <laughs> closing the lid honestly parts of that this scene with this jail felt like Mm -hmm. a mel brooks movie to me (laughs) a little bit right it's almost high comedy yeah so he is sent by the burgomaster basically to stay out of trouble and maybe avoid jail time (laughs) he is sent to sleepy hollow where there have been a series of murders so over the credits we watch his journey he is also reviewing his books and his new instruments and we also take note that he has a strange set of scars on his palm Yep, which will become important, kind of. Honestly, I don't need this backstory for Ichabod Crane, but whatever. I don't, but we're definitely doing Man of Science, Man of Faith. And I will say, I... So, (laughs) I saw this movie when I was a teenager. By the way, uh, (laughs) shout out to you being like, I saw this movie when I was in high school. That's not helpful, Trace, because people don't know when that is. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. So, this this would have been like 2003, 2004 when I finally saw this film. (laughs) So, four to five years later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I saw this movie when I was finishing high school. So, I would have been 17 or 18 when this came out. And... The Lisa Marie flashback reveal mm-hmm. freaked me out. Wait, like of her and the Iron Maiden? The, her p- coming out and just that explosion of yeah. blood. I found it really effective. Interesting. I've always been like, well, how'd she die? <laughs> uh, it's called bloodletting. She oh, had yeah, none no, left in her body. <laughs> but when I was a kid, when I was a kid, when I was a high schooler, I was very much like, a, oh, I mean, it's I get I either wanted more from these flashbacks or mm-hmm. d- not have them. Like it, 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 it's fine. That's so interesting. No, I I actually quite like them. I mean, you could argue you could cut them out and the film would probably be fine. But I think it gives us some interesting insight into Ichabod and why he is drawn to the supernatural. And particularly if you want to believe in the love story, he's basically falling in love with his mom again. Yeah, we are dealing with some Oedipal complex here. It just it feels like a little <laughs> bit. Um, but back to this opening credit sequence. Um, can we talk about Danny Elfman's score? And by talk about, I mean, I Ooh. love it. <laughs> I practically had to strap in because he was blowing me away in certain sequences of this film. <laughs> I will say Waxwork Records put a really good vinyl of this last year. Oh, and bet, um yeah. but like uh the uh the center of the vinyl is the um the cardinal thing that he with the cage oh, that he flips around over. And over. That's smart. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah. So Ichabod makes it into town as night is falling, and he sees the night watchman, Jonathan Masbeth, uh, who is played by Mark Spaulding. I mean, pick him out of a lineup. You see him for two seconds in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but he is saying goodnight to his son, who is played by Mark Pickering. And then Ichabod makes his way to this large mansion. And as he's knocking on the door, he observes two figures making out in the dark. But we can't identify them just yet. This will become important later. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that is our new catchphrase. (laughs) Put that in your back pocket. It'll be important later. Especially, though, for a murder mystery slash whodunit. And Mm -hmm. that's the thing is, like, I I forgot that the the twin girls were revealed in the first flashback with the Headless Horseman. And I was Mm -hmm. like, what? Like, why are they showing this? this?" But I I guess, like, are you supposed to think it's Katrina or her mom or something? I don't don't really know why. Whatever. It's fine. 
I feel like you're just meant to pay attention that there's two of them because they're a little bit creepy. And then you're meant to be looking to see who could that possibly be. And ironically enough, there's really only one female yeah. character of a certain age. So it is the movie telling on itself. I wonder, though, because it, it is kind of, I mean, it's played for a laugh, right? And sure. I kind of think maybe the, the, the hope is we're throwing so much, because look, there's a lot of expository dialogue in this Truly. movie. And I think the idea is that you're getting so much thrown at you that you're you're not you're probably going to forget about those girls until the reveal happens. A hundred percent. And then as soon as you see them come back, you realize, oh, okay, that was important. Got it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ichabod is let into the mansion, and he has basically come into the middle of a party, and he walks into a game of the Pickety Witch that is being played by (laughs) Katrina Van Tassel, Christina Ricci, and she plants a big old kiss on him. Which really angers her kind of boyfriend, but not Brom, played by Casper Van Dien. Speaking of people I always forget are in this movie. (laughs) Totally forgot. I mean, truthfully, his part is kind of nothing. awful it's such a bad part but you know what he is very enthusiastic i think (laughs) i watched the interview yeah because there's a a special feature making of doc on Mm -hmm. the blu-ray and he's in it for a hot second and it seems like he took this role principally so that he could do the battle sequence with the horseman no yeah he was i watched the exact same thing also um can we talk about the narrator on that featurette because it's like the guy that does the disney movies like that does the disney trailers and he's like tim burton and everyone are back in town for sleepy hollow (laughs) (laughs) makes you wonder was this the thing that was put on the website maybe (laughs) (laughs) yes that person is almost as excited as danny elfman so brahm is not pleased by this he's immediately hostile we take note of that just in case we need a red herring for later but not really yeah and then ichabod is welcomed by the master of the house baltus van tassel who is played by michael gambon fantastic i love him in this role i always forget the church scene like that like three kill mm. three of these guys in quick succession and i always feel so bad for Truly. michael gammon because this poor guy mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't do anything wrong <laughs> well you could argue most of the people in this movie haven't done anything wrong except oh wait this is secretly an eat the rich movie oh a hundred percent because that's the whole motive and arguably this guy is a profiteer of all of this right the reason he is now the richest man in town is because van garrett is dead and he has profited from everyone else's misfortune. Yeah, but they all seem happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we're only following the rich people. <laughs> Anyway, Baltus has a wife who does not have a first name, so she is only Lady Van Tassel, who's played by Miranda Richardson. And it's funny because if you know Miranda Richardson, this seems like Casper Van Dien's part. It's nothing. It's a throwaway. Why is she in this fucking movie until you get to the end? They, yeah, I, I was paying special attention. I was like, how much, how, how much is she in this movie? She's really not in it that much in the, for the mm-hmm. first 70, 80 minutes. And she has nary a line of dialogue, which is why when the, when the affair stuff happens later, I think it's a really good way to throw you off her scent. Mm-hmm. Unlike the, the she's dying off screen thing, which. Oh it, boy. <laughs> We're back to the horror trips that gotta go from last month's Patreon. Admittedly, I'm not 
as bothered by it here, if only because up to that point, like that character feels kind of like a non-entity. Right. Which is the point. Um, whereas if she was like, um, if it was Katrina, I'd be like, come on. Right. Yeah. I think if nothing else, it just stands out so much because this movie does not shy away from showing the horsemen killing people. Mm-hmm. So I remember even on a first watch, I took note of that and thought, hmm. I'm suspicious of this. Well, and I think I think another like path you could go down is, oh no, he's controlling the horseman. He killed her. That's why he's running to the church saying she's dead, she's dead, she's dead. Uh, interesting. I never suspected him. I, I didn't either. I, mean, I, I, I don't <laughs> think it's that successful, but I think that's like a possibility. Like if you're like trying to put it all together, it's like, well, this could be going on or this could be going on. But right. If, if nothing else, it throws you off her scent, which is the desired thing yeah sure yeah yeah (laughs) okay so as he arrives we take note there are glances among the high-powered men in the room and then we move to the sitting room and he is introduced to them all so we have dr thomas lancaster who as you mentioned is played by ian mcdermott we have reverend steenwick who is played by this movie is kind of filled with not pedophiles (laughs) so we've got sex pest jeffrey jones and then we've got magistrate samuel phillips and he's played by Richard Griffiths. And finally, we have notary James Hardenbrook, who is played by Michael Goh. Uh, I wish he had more to do in this movie, too. And also, mm-hmm. I kind of wish we had seen his suicide scene. It is the other weird thing, because it's just mentioned. Yeah. And I couldn't help but wonder if it was something that they cut for either pacing or because it was too morbid because everybody else gets killed and he's the character who dies by suicide. Well, also, like, if you're not paying attention to names, when they say notary Hardenbrook hanged himself last night, you're like, Mm -hmm. who? Who? (laughs) (laughs) That is part of the problem. I mean, these men are being generous. They're probably character actors. You recognize the faces. You may not have recognized many of those names as I read them out. So it's one of those things where the cast is actually secretly stacked, but most of these people are only properly characters because we like the actors. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them are character actors or very like high class theater actors, stage actors. Mm-hmm. British through and through. Yeah. So. Ichabod reviews the details of the three deaths that he knows of. So we have Ben Garrett and his son, and then we have the widow Winship, who we will never see never. alive, and we barely get to see her body. I okay, and here's the thing. So A, I, I do applaud this movie for being mean by killing a pregnant woman. Sure. I feel like that's why we don't see this character die though. Mm-hmm. Like a part of me is like, is there a, like an alternate cold open with Helena Bonham Carter as the widow Winship and she gets Right. <laughs> Bear in mind, I don't think Helena Bottom Carter and Tim Burton were together at this point. Or Michelle Pfeiffer is the widow winship. Or uh, right. um, yeah. he just did Mars Attacks. I mean, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is the widow winship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Annette Bidding is the widow winship. It could be that we're trying to keep her identity secret, not just because it's integral to the eventual killer reveal, but also I think because it'd be too much of a distraction early on. Maybe so. So one detail that Ichabod has wrong is that the heads have not been found. So all of these people were decapitated all the heads are missing and this is when we introduce the concept of a headless horseman so we get a little bit of a backstory this is the kind of flashback as michael gambon is telling us so he was a hessian mercenary who was sent to keep the people under the yoke of england but he loved the bloodshed too much and i will say you mentioned francis ford coppola and i can't help but feel this 
is so similar to that opening of 1992's, right? A hundred percent. Like, it's all I could think of when I saw these battle scenes. I was like, oh, okay. Just slap a red filter on it and it's Dracula. <laughs> exactly. Costuming is good, but not quite as good. I, I, I will say, Christopher Walken's teeth, like his whole makeup Ooh. on his face is real good. It's also a very fun, I mean, it's a fun performance because he's clearly having a ball doing this, even with the prosthetic teeth that look very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I forget that he doesn't speak in this role. There's no. no dialogue at all. Never speaks. And it is, of course, uh, it's not him in the headless outfit. Um, that no. is, of course, uh, stuntman Ray Park, who, um, again, for having uh, Phantom Menace just being in this mm-hmm. studio, I guess he just, like, moved right back in. <laughs> <laughs> he was hiding in the closet waiting for one production to end so he could just come out and work on the next one. He probably, like, walked out with his Darth Maul gear on and then they were like, uh, dude, that movie's over. <laughs> we're gonna need the head paint to go from red to green so we can green screen you out <laughs> <laughs> so uh what we see of the horseman is you know he's going through the western woods he's decapitating all these soldiers killing everybody in sight and then he tries to flee and he is betrayed by two little blonde girls, one of whom snaps a twig, and then all the soldiers find him. They decapitate him, bury his body in an unmarked grave, which is then cursed for the subsequent 20 years. I do love to, um, like, because we learn later that uh, Lady Van Tassel, uh, she of the twig snapping, yes. she of the twig snapping variety, yes, um, she pledged her soul to Satan right then and there. So I love that we have mm-hmm. this child. Uh-huh. <laughs> But then she has to really wait out the long con. <laughs> <laughs> it took me ages to enact my plan. Ugh. Well, because, and to be clear, uh, well, that's the other thing, though. This flashback is 20 years before the quote-unquote present of the film. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, really, what, Miranda Richardson's meant to be, like, I guess in her mid-30s in this movie? Yeah, um, I guess she just has had a harder life. <laughs> oh, my God, before we even say that, like, what? <laughs> I was going to say, how old was she? How old was she? She was my I'm going to guess she was 38. Oh, my God. Yeah, you were actually, like, right on the dot because she was born in 58. So, she would have been actually 39 when they were filming this. No. Oh, my God. Wait. 40. But if you do the math, the character should be about, what, 27, 28, maybe 30 at the most? That's kind of what I'm thinking, which is kind of like, why don't you just set the flashback 10 years before that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. because it's immaterial that it's been 20 years. Well, unless, unless for some reason you're supposed to think, oh, maybe it's Katrina's mom or something like that. I, don't I will say, I did sometimes think it was Katrina's mom because we're definitely name dropping the fact that, you know, she used to live in the Archer house and mm-hmm. there's this other sad sob story. I mean, we're doing a lot of sob stuff. Okay. I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite details, too, of how fucking stupid Katrina is, is when she goes to burn all the evidence later, she doesn't just mm-hmm. use the fireplace in her own fucking house. She mm-hmm. goes back to her old cottage, but that's just a fireplace in the middle of the woods. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a single her, no walls at all. But also, we got to get that exposition in there somehow, you know. Oh, see the archer. The archer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. Okay. So back in the present, aka 1799, we have Scaredy Cat Echabod who spots the Ben Garrett family tree in the Reverend's Bible that he is given. And of course, 
this will become important later. Yeah, but it's basically everyone in this town is related by either blood or marriage. So, um, you know, if someone, say, killing people to uh, knock down a family lineage to get an inheritance, um, Mm -hmm. that might be important. Truly. And you got to kill a lot of them because there's so many connected people. (laughs) If you're really that far down the line, you got a lot of work to do. (laughs) Oh, boy. My axe swinging arm is getting tired just thinking about it. (laughs) So Ichabod is not at all convinced by the legend of the horseman, and he pledges he will find the flesh and blood assassin. Sadly, it is too late for Mr. Masbeth, the night watchman. So he is the next to go. And I will say watching the mist creep out and pluck yes. the uh, the, flames. the torches. So oh, good. <laughs> it's I, I, that's a digital effect. It has, to be. And it has here, to be. This is like Tim Burton, like shifting from his like more practical approach to CGI. And I, mm-hmm. the CGI, which is done by ILM, is fine sometimes. Um, Ooh, I don't okay. think the horse. I don't think when the horseman's head is regenerating at the end. I don't think it looks very uh, good. Um, that felt very 1999 to me. Very much so. But like you know, when the horse jumps out of the tree, like that's a completely mm-hmm. CGI horse and horseman. And so I, oh, and it looks great. It looks great. But again, I, I think coupled with the, that monochromatic lighting, the, the color scheme mm-hmm. of this film. And again, we're using CGI to enhance practical effects. We're not yes. just substituting practical effects with CGI. Yeah. See Tim Burton's future endeavors in which he leans too heavily into this. Yep, yep. Uh, fingers crossed for Beetlejuice 2, which apparently will not be featuring uh, many, uh, if at all, any CGI. Oh, interesting. He said he's going okay. back to basics, so... Thank God. Everyone, just go back to practical. I know it's a little more expensive, but the results speak for themselves. They sure shit do. So, yes, uh, old Masbeth, Night Watchman Masbeth, is basically ridden down and then chopped up in the woods, and he is dead. Yeah, and I think this is the first and two where you're kind of like, who is this? Why do I care? What, what What's going on here? It's a random guy, and you really are meant to think at this point in the film that the murders are Random. Random. Yeah, absolutely. So the next morning, Ichabod is given a horse named Gunpowder from Killian, who is played by Stephen Waddington. And we do take note that he has a wife named Beth, who is played by Claire Skinner, and a young son who is going to be a sociopath if he ever grew up, but thankfully he's murdered. (laughs) And he is played by Sean Stevens. And take note of the three of them, because even though they seem like superfluous non-entities... They'll become important later. She's the goose. <laughs> <laughs> what a goose. But I do love that they all have red hair, though, because it really lets them stand out. Truly. Yeah. I mean, I do think, ironically, this is meant to be, and redheads, don't get mad at me. I think that this is meant to be a marker of, like, Irish descent, and therefore they are being coded as poor. That is tracks so yes i will say i will agree with you on that but this is another kind of like okay why are we spending time with these characters so we're still really getting introduced to the town and it's kind of layout but you know these are working class people you know she's a midwife they don't have a large house compared to someone like the van tassels and then you kind of forget about them because we're not going to see them again until they die yeah I think we see them like once more, maybe fleetingly. I, I think don't know. we see Killian for something. Yeah. Yeah. But nevertheless. Nevertheless. So Ichabod jumps on gunpowder, rides out to take charge of the crime scene, and he conducts a series of tests. And this is really when we're starting to get the interplay between he 
is smart in his own way. So he's able to suss out the direction that the horseman traveled by reenacting it. But also he is very much in over his uh-huh, head. <laughs> because, you know, Van Tassel has to remind him of a bunch of things and ask him, hey, shouldn't you be doing stuff? I do like that moment where he pours some kind of thing and creates... There's <laughs> a chemical smoke, reaction. That a means chemical whatever. Reaction. You're like, no, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Not all of his ideas are good. Again, the comedy here, though, is like, you must never move the body. Why not? Because. Because. (laughs) (laughs) He's got the right intuition. We'll say that. But this is where we learn, though, that the the wounds on the the neck were cauterized as if the blade were Mm -hmm. red hot. Yes, except that there is no singeing or distortion of the flesh. So it's a mystery. It's supernatural. How would a flesh and blood killer have managed this? That's kind of the thing, though, right? Like, they're all watching this and they're like, what the f- this guy's wasting our fucking time. It's a headless mm-hmm. horseman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the the outsider who comes in, but then must be convinced of the thing that everyone else already knows. So mm. in a lot of ways many elements of the narrative are tried and true. We've seen these kinds of stories before, but the combination of the comedy, which is often unexpected, at least to me, and then Burton's stylized approach makes a lot of this go down easier. Whereas I think if it was other folks, I would probably be rolling my eyes saying that's a little familiar, folks. But it works. Yeah, Yeah, it works. So we cut to the funeral as we see that young Masbeth is offering his services as a manservant to Ichabod because, of course, he basically (laughs) is an orphan and he needs someone to take care of him. Which, uh, they can just do that? I mean, I guess it's like 1799 laws, but like still. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think in this case, he's trying to prove that he has a value that might keep him out of something like a foster home or an orphanage. But also, you know, it's a revenge narrative for him at this point. He wants to clear his father's name, bring the killer to justice in the same way that Ichabod does. Yeah. So then we've got uh, Phillips covertly hinting that the widow Winship was pregnant. And this is a very under the breath as I'm walking away. Hey, maybe take a look at this. So Ichabod ends up digging up the body of this widow and performing a very gross comedic autopsy in Dr. Lancaster's office. And I will say, this scene goes on for too long. It does, but honestly, the payoff when he walks out covered in blood and they're all just Mm -hmm. like, Jesus, man, what did you do to her? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and again, he's doing this to a pregnant woman. Like, Mm -hmm. I love that touch of the the, the stab wound through her belly. And uh, to be clear, so with the mystery portion of this... All of these men, except for Baltus Van Tassel, all these uh, these elders, they know that Lady Van Tassel is doing this. Um, I don't think they know it's her. I think they know that someone knows that they're all involved and that their heads are probably next. Okay, so the only reason is because in her in her climactic monologue, she's like, oh, like, you know, uh, Ian McDermott didn't say anything because I blackmailed him with him fornicating with Sarah. Right. Okay. And then she's like, fear delivered uh, the, no- the, the, the notary into my hand. And also the magistrate Philip, so they were too afraid to do anything and like cross my path. See, I read that as fear, not of her, of just losing your head in general. So fear caused the suicide. And then obviously she supposedly worked her witchy magic on the reverend. 
And see, the only other thing was that's making me think that they all knew is because before, like in the church scene, before Steenwick kills Ian McDiarmid, mm-hmm. Ian McDiarmid's mid-sentence saying, sorry, we were devilishly possessed by, right. meaning they, they were like seduced or whatever, like by Lady Van Tassel. But I don't know. Oh, oh see, <laughs> I've always read that as they were seduced by prophet oh maybe to be kept silent because they wanted to keep everything that they have interesting see that i think you're more right than i am though well because steamwick kills him at that point because he's like don't say her name (laughs) well but he is supposedly bewitched in this moment like he i think definitely knows or she has whispered something in his ear to the effect of hey if anybody starts talking you got to get rid of them right because they yeah because he's the one that's fucking her Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, whatever. (laughs) Okay. So that night, Ichabod is subjected to a prank by Brahm, and this is where we get the recreation of the flaming pumpkin. It's a good scene. It's good. I will say the first time I saw this, I was really upset because I was like, wait, it's not the real horseman that does the cartoon stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm confused. I wanted the cartoon version. I do appreciate that that Ichabod is aware immediately that it's a a prank being played on him. Yes, which is interesting, right? I mean, he's he sometimes struggles with what is real and what is supernatural, but again, he's he's able to deduce based on the evidence. I think he, he you can hear Brom laughing as he runs away, and I don't think that's something the horseman does. No, 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 no. But but that's how he knows. That's how he knows it's a trick. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't get out of this without fainting, and this is where we get a flashback to scenes of his mother, who is played by Tim Burton's then-girlfriend, Lisa Marie. So she's making strange marks in the hearth, and she is bedazzling him with a trompe l'oeil of a caged cardinal. I'm sorry, a trompe l'oeil? Is that what it's called? Technically, yes. Or you could just say it's an optical Optical illusion. Uh, so this is all, okay, what are we to take from this? How is this going to fit in? It's, you know, trauma repressed that's coming back in dream form. And we know that we'll get the answer before the end of the film. Of course we will. Of course of we course will. Of course we will. Otherwise, what's the fucking point? I think, though, too, a lot of, the, maybe this is why I also kind of, maybe it doesn't rub me the wrong way, but a lot of these flashbacks just remind me of the same kind of Everett Scissorhands flashbacks we get in that movie. Truly, truly. I mean, I feel like this film is... Maybe in conversation is too strong a term, mm-hmm. but it definitely feels like it's pulling from the previous collaboration between Burton and Depp. Yeah. Um, I remember they had – have you ever seen Ed Wood? I've not actually seen I've, Ed I've heard it's actually like legitimately like Burton's best film by many, many people. Um, I've always wanted to see it, but – Yeah. Uh, we're going to catch a lot of grief for both having not seen it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it's really good. Yes, we know. We know. <laughs> Okay, so when he uh, eventually wakes up, he stumbles on Katrina, who is reading in the library, and we will come to learn that she is reading her mother's book of spells. But uh, this is where she drops a little bit of her background exposition. So Lady Van Tassel was her mother's sick nurse, and everyone in Sleepy Hollow is related to each other. See, okay, but the the reveal about uh, the, the the stepmother being the nurse again—it okay, mm-hmm. it, it feels like a throwaway line. So if you aren't listening, you will easily miss that crucial bit of information. 
Sure, 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 sure. To me, this feels properly gothic horror too, mm-hmm. right? Where it's the the nurse who poisoned her way into the marriage bed so that she could exact bloody revenge. And you're just yeah. like, oh, okay. Maybe it's not hammer horror, but it definitely feels indebted to that UK brand. Honestly, I would watch the like this movie, but with with the stepmother is POV. Like we're, she's the mm. protagonist of the film. <laughs> I mean, even her talking about the trials of her and her sister living in the woods after mm-hmm. her mother dies and then having to grow up and, yeah, take this kind of revenge story, it's very men in the Iron Mask. Oh, shit. Deep cut. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Katrina ends up offering him the spell book, even though he obviously does not believe in that because he's a man of science now. I will say, though, she's pretty open about her use of witchcraft, which seems... Truly anachronistic (laughs) (laughs) i think it's because we're meant to believe that the minute she takes off that blindfold and kisses him she already knew that she was in love with him and could trust him well i guess though like like, but i I, other people in the town know that she practices magic because we all we hear from lady van tassel later that their mother was like they were banished because Mm -hmm. her mother was accused of witchcraft suspected of witchcraft whereas here's katrina just fucking doing it in the middle of the road i mean yes and no right because he surprises her when she's reading the spell book as though she waits until everyone is asleep to go down and read it in the library. Right, 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 right. And I guess, I mean, I guess she's, not, she, but I, the only thing that I'm like, what is when she's doing the sigil in the church? Well, but at that point, it's a she's dire de- Yeah, she's desperate. Yeah. Yeah. So he does end up taking the book and she bids him to keep it next to his heart. Oh, romance. Uh, also, will become important later, uh-huh. quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> To the point that when he gets stabbed by the horseman, I went, oh, there's the payoff with the spell book. <laughs> no, it's not until later. It's way later. <laughs> <laughs> so she does also take him to the ruins of her older, very small, very burnt out house. And uh, yeah, this is where she's fully just, you know, oh, I'm just inadvertently drawing things on the ground in the earth as you're looking and this is when he gives her the toy the optical illusion and says it is truth but truth is not always appearance and honestly this is the theme of the film a hundred (laughs) percent everything that you see can't always be trusted because no one is quite who they pretend to be. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, given like that this is a period piece that also tracks, uh, I feel like it's just a common thing in these types of stories. For sure. Mm-hmm. But also it's a mystery. So, you know, everyone has it's to be uh, duplicitous. <laughs> yeah. If, if everyone was forthright, the movie would be over. So Ichabod ends up following Magistrate Phillips to ask him about the widow's baby daddy. And he he looks like he's on the verge of running out of town at this point. And he then immediately loses his head. So this is a bit of a non-starter. We just know that other people know, but we don't learn much before Phillips is killed. We do get this fun sequence where the head rolls down in between Ichabod's legs, and then the horseman impales it with his... Uh, yeah. With his- Sword. This is probably the most like, oh god, what's the word I'm looking for? Where it's it's just like, it's a gag. Like it's it's mm-hmm. like the gaggiest gag in the movie. 
<laughs> his, yeah. his head spins around, rolling between his legs, and God gets that sword right in the middle of it. Also, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's he's only dying right now because he clued in Ichabod about the baby. Yeah, so this is a payback. You should have kept your mouth shut, and now you're dead. Also, uh, if you're looking for a gentle queer reading in this, if you want to believe oh. that Ichabod is queer... We've got a man's head literally rolling into his crotch. Yeah, um, it's, um, yes. And then he <laughs> faints exact same in a thing. moment of gay panic. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I think he kind of likes it. He's just terrified by the horseman. Right. That must be it. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he faints again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Recurring gag throughout the film. Here's the thing. I, I, I remembered this movie being a full two hours. It's an hour, 45 minutes. So it's not mm-hmm. that long of a movie. But um, I do appreciate that he believes, like, sees the horseman 40 minutes into this movie. Yeah, I think any longer than that, and it would have been... He would have had to willingly be suspending his disbelief, like, to the point of... Okay, I'm just keeping the plot from advancing. So I appreciate that the second murder since he arrives in town, he's actually seeing the horseman. Yeah, 100%. So we get this moment of high comedy where, yes, he admits he has seen it to Baltus Van Tassel, uh, who tells him, yes, we told you this several times. Everyone, yes, we told you. Everyone told you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gambon, what a treat. Uh, so he does end up fainting once again, and we get a little bit more with mom. So we see her floating up in a clearing. It's very the end of the witch. And then we see his dad berating her, and we realize that his dad was a man of the cloth. Yeah, I actually kind of wish, okay, I wish that this theme would have been hammered in more, like more of a critique Mm -hmm. on this kind of, um, uh, it's intolerance, right? Yeah, this fanatic religious religiousness. Like, I, I, I wish, like, it's there, and yes, it feeds into Ichabod's character. But I almost mm-hmm. wish the film had taken a stronger stance on it. I mean, I feel like it kind of does. It doesn't beat you over the head, but the fact that we all, everyone in the town, flees to the church, and then the richest man in town gets impaled by a white. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I guess Steamwick does kill. Um, what's his face with a, with a with giant the crucifix? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it definitely tells me that these people who pretend to be pious or religious are phonies, scoundrels, philanders, adulterers. So I mean, this is a very corrupt town. Yeah, not much has changed in two hundred years. But it's interesting because you can't make the claim that these women who are persecuted, much like the Salem witch trials or the purported way that we look at the Salem witch trials often in media. Like you can't make the argument that they were persecuted unfairly because we do have Lady Van Tassel using witchcraft to her own you know, well, murderous I mean, advantage. That's the thing she says, like, oh, but my, no one would hit my mother because she was suspected of witchcraft, but she schooled her daughters well. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so she was, they, they suspected correctly. <laughs> if, maybe if nothing else, it's that it depends on the person. Like, you can choose to be good, like Ichabod, like Katrina, like mm-hmm. young Masbeth. Or you can choose to use your intellect and your skills for bad, right? Which is all of these corrupted men who choose power and privilege and money over Mm -hmm. their duties or their jobs and responsibilities. Uh, And then Lady Van Tassel, where it's like, oh, you could have been doing really good things with your witchcraft, but instead you tried to do the... The same game that the men did. Which, you know what? More power to her. I mean, I, I do find her kind of a sympathetic villain. 
Yeah, I mean, she's going about it in sort of the wrong way because she is killing people very willy-nilly by the end of the movie. <laughs> you know, she didn't like Sarah because... Okay. <laughs> That's one of my favorite shots in the movie, though. So, like, the way that murder is framed, like, hey, it, it, it looks like a backdrop. Like, it looks like the Wizard of Oz, like, Kansas backdrop. And she's just, you know, uh-huh. doing whatever, picking corn or whatever. And the way Miranda Richards just waltzes into frame with the mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you told me that Ty West and Mia Goth had studied yes! <laughs> this for Pearl, I wouldn't be surprised. It's so, I mean, like, she is just flinging this axe around. It is so mm-hmm. funny to watch her do this. I, again, I wish we had to see, see more of this from Miranda Richardson, but at least we get it in the last 20 minutes of this movie. Truly. I, I think too much more of it would have tipped the film too far into camp and ridiculousness. But I am glad that we get to see some of these. It's almost selected excerpts of her exploits. A hundred. Like, what would, I mean, I know she like she would have been known for the crying game by this point, obviously. But like, mm-hmm. I don't really know if I know her from knew her from anything else before this. So I actually watched her in this amazing. It's in a European art house erotic thriller called Damage. She plays the wife of jeremy irons and he's he's basically like in line to become the prime minister and he ends up fucking his son's girlfriend played by julia Binoche. Ooh, and it like implodes his career destroys his marriage ruins his relationship with his son but miranda richardson is his wife and she has this one outburst in the kitchen it's a very understated character but when she finds out and she confronts him uh, it was, I think, an Oscar-nominated performance by this one scene. Um, you are correct. She was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, but she won the British Oscar Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. It's a really interesting film. The sex scenes are wild. I mean, it's Jeremy Irons, so you know it's going to be kinky and weird, but he is absolutely <laughs> fucking Julia Binoche in the weirdest positions. It's a strong recommend. I wrote about it for my erotic thriller. I've series. never even heard of it. I'm God. Okay. Yeah. Shit. N- noted. Uh, whatever you do, though, do not watch the other adaptation because I think it's based on a book. Uh, but they made it into a mini series with Richard Armitage on Netflix called Obsession, and that one is bad. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> there you go. So, damage, yes. Obsession, no. Okay. So, uh, we come out of the latest mom-related flashback, and Ichabod decides, we're gonna go with young Masbeth, we're gonna find the Hessian's grave in the western woods. I actually like the way, too, because, I mean, like, again, Ichabod is kind of a scaredy cat, but Mm -hmm. he does, like, take charge and have agency when he's, like, when he's ready to go. Well, and that's the interesting thing. So, when I went into preparation research mode for this episode Uh as i said i was going to make this argument well ichabod is coded female for a lot of the time right like the fainting the sort of weakness and aversion to gore and then you factor in scenes like this so he's he's towing the line between traditional masculine skills where he's a detective you know he's all about pragmatic science and this kind of stuff but then you've got these other scenes and i think what's interesting about the character is that he manages to balance and negotiate those it's also who the character is in the book so there's a lot of academic stuff that's been written about how the character embodies both traditionally masculine and feminine qualities in the short story but uh oh i i believe in the short story though ichabod crane disappears basically is killed by the headless horseman so Mm -hmm. i i would 
almost think that that's like a punishment for that type type of behavior then. Um, yeah, I, I would have to read it to make yeah. a better argument, but I'm curious to know what people think because it seems like if you're like me and you had only seen the film, you might think, oh, this is an odd choice to make the character this way unless you're just looking to play into the comedy, but it does feel like a natural extension of who the character is in the short. Yeah, I, I think he is given a bit more agency or like a, a better set of balls, if you will. <laughs> well, even the decision to change him from a traditionally female-coded profession like a school teacher right. to a proper constable. Yeah, no, that's true. But I think it also just works better for a murder mystery. Yeah. Okay, so he and young Masbeth set out, uh, and we get a little bit more of secret exposition where young Masbeth says, oh, hey, I remember my dad was called out to act as a witness after the Van Garretts argued about something one night, and it happened just before father and son were murdered. I, I think that's also why sometimes this mystery can get confusing, is because we're, we're only here, it's all a lot of hearsay, like we're just hearing about these things from other people and not seeing them. Yeah, so you're not exactly sure if it's rumor, can it be taken as fact, will it be corroborated by someone else? And again, like, wh how, what information is important? Like, what, what, what mm -hmm do i need to remember for for the mystery it's actually all of it <laughs> uh, ironically enough i would argue that the next piece that we're going to get is it's still important but it's less important than a lot of the other things we'll learn what is it so we hear humming and we're introduced to what will eventually be revealed to be the sister of Lady Van Tassel, but this is the witch who lives in the woods. Yeah. It's a good moment of scare where she chains herself up to the table. I don't like the CGI on her face. Yeah. Well, I think we're only doing because like, this is also played by Miranda Richardson. And so we have to hide that, though. We cannot reveal uh -huh. that this is Miranda Richardson. She's wearing a veil. And then, yeah, she gets this mm -hmm. stupid CGI face. It looks like the mask almost. <laughs> it does. It really, really does. Yeah. And the whole point is to make sure that we don't connect her as because if we saw that it looked like Lady Van Tassel we would immediately remember the two little girls in the woods and that would clue us into something yeah but then it's also kind of like well she, I think she knows it's her sister so why doesn't she just be like I mean again it's, it's like what lies beneath ghost logic where it's like just tell him mm. tell him oh my sister's an evil witch uh, she's yeah. married to the Van Tassel and she controls the horseman there you go mm -hmm. mystery solved <laughs> <laughs> I will say one of the I don't think it's proper camp because it's not it's not silly in that way. But watching her prepare this kind of yeah. stew, <laughs> you know, she's just having a conversation with Ichabod, randomly chopping off the heads of bats and draining Squeezing them. Squeezing the blood out. <laughs> the very paint 70s hammer blood. It's so funny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, also, even Masbeth, when she does like the, the like finger mm -hmm. across her throat and she's like, That'll be him, ma'am. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that was a trailer moment, right? Where she does the cross over her neck. Yes, but but it was played much more sinister. Like, it's like yes. the, oh, like creepy veiled woman. Ooh, like, ooh. Yeah, so all of this is in here so we can get directions to the grave. And I would argue that you could just have them find the tree in the woods and now off we go. But obviously, we need to introduce this character so that we can pay off, oh, Lady Van Tassel has a twin at the end of the film. Yep. Love a good twin. Sure. Love a twin. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> wait, are we still in erotic thrillers? We've got 
blonde twins yeah well what dude when they reveal though the sister at the end it looks like she has herpes sores all over her mouth 100 <laughs> percent. what happened to the sister living in the woods gives you an sti i guess <laughs> she's been making out with too many bats <laughs> so we do pick up katrina en route and yes then we find the tree of the dead and we get some high comedy as ichabod tries to pull out these heads and is just splattered in blood okay Okay, the, I, again, I, it's you're gonna laugh at me because I think I mentioned very uh, oh god during Bound and I was like oh it's a Jaws homage with the um the the, the toilet water like you know rippling mm. uh, no oh I said Jurassic Park homage that's yes, what I said did. um but no I was like oh this is like a Jaws thing with the heads popping out it's it's like Ben's head and Jaws <laughs> oh my god sure. <laughs> Not everything comes back to Jaws or Jurassic Park. Uh, but no, th- I think this is so much fun, though, as he's hacking into this route and just like, just, I mean, getting covered in blood. What's well, funny, too, because his his hacks are, are quite delicate. Yes, they are. <laughs> and the corresponding volume of blood is ridiculous. I mean, I feel like we've definitely seen this gag play out a bunch of different times. It does remind me of the Mel Brooks Lucy scene from Dracula Dead and Loving It. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes! Yes! Did I tell you I rewatched that recently? You did. You said it didn't hold up. No, it doesn't. That's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after discovering the horseman's skull has been stolen, so we dig up the grave. Oops, we've got a skeleton, but no head. Mm-hmm. And this is when the trio see the horseman spring out from the tree en route to town this looks awesome like it's I, amazing this is definitely not part of the original story and i love the, no. this little tweak to it like oh it's so cool <laughs> mm-hmm. and of course you know a storm is brewing we've not talked about the production design of these actual woods but they built the whole forest because they knew they were going to be spending a bunch of time here and i just think it's such an incredibly beautiful well-used set Oh, it the whole thing. And here's the thing. It it does look like a set. Like it mm-hmm. by design because that's what yeah. you know he's going for with the hammer and like, honestly like those universal monster movies of the 30s and 40s. Um mm-hmm. the artificiality of it adds to it for me. Like I, yeah. I, this and it also feels a little bit claustrophobic. Um and maybe it's a combination of the fog with like mm-hmm. it does feel like we're in a room instead of like an actual forest here. Yeah, it's weird. It's got a bunch of things that shouldn't be working and I think it's because we implicitly, as you said, recognize it as a set and we lean into the artificiality of it. It almost heightens it as opposed to takes away from it. Anyway, so we realize that the horseman is headed back to town to do some damage. So uh, let's see where he's going. Oh, shit. Killian and his family are on the agenda. And Trace, this set piece is one of my favorites in this movie. From the magic lantern that this sociopathic child is so excited about, (laughs) to the way Beth reacts when she knows that they're in fucking danger, to seeing... I think my favorite moment is where she goes to scream and it gets cut Cut off off. as her head gets decapitated. And I'm not going to lie... It's Elsa 
from I Know What You Did Last Summer. Oh my God, yes, it is. Um, uh, it, this is again, it's it's a digital touch actually, but it's whenever right before the horseman comes in and like the fireplace kind of explodes behind mm-hmm. Killian, but there are faces in the flames, which yes. I think is really cool. What a great touch! It's it, 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 it's so easy to miss. It's very subtle, but if you see it, like it is, it, it's like it's like devil faces in the mm-hmm. flames behind him. Funnily enough, this is the set piece that intro like, that begins the teaser trailer for this film. So like. Okay. I knew watching this in theaters, I was like, oh my God, they kill a kid in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, they advertise that. (laughs) Yeah. And the best part is, is that you think this child is going to be fine because he's been hidden in this secret little area underneath the floor. The moment where Mm -hmm. he hears the stomping, it's all sound design of the horseman collecting the head but only after you see her eyes through a crack in the floor Dude, that oh. ha- okay so here's the thing I, I i i wrote in my little letterbox review this i was like this is a lot meaner than i remember it being like mm-hmm. and again it's not like a super gory movie we are getting decapitations there is blood but like some of these kills i mean again like the way phillips's head gets stabbed is mean but like this kid seeing mm-hmm. the dead eyes of his mother's severed head looking at him through the floorboards is just mm-hmm. mwah, oh it's love it great It's also, I mean, I know that you said you haven't really loved the Ichabod flashbacks, but the way that young Thomas here looks at his dead mother and the way her eyes still have almost a sense of life, but they're also very, very clearly dead is very anticipatory of how Ichabod will find his mother's body in the flashbacks. Yeah, I think you're right. And while... I do kind of lament the fact that we don't see this kid get decapitated. Um, mm-hmm. I do love that we at least try because as the, we'll see um, when Brom walks up, uh, the horseman's walking out and he's in the process of putting the kid's head in the back. <laughs> yeah. All because this little kid had to make a startled sound over Ugh, his mom. God. I mean, again, the only reason she is dead is because she told Lady Van Tassel that the widow Winship told her a big secret. And she mm-hmm. said this right in front of her husband. What a goose! <laughs> <laughs> I love how much delight you get out of that. And I know other people are feeling the exact same way. Well, I also love, though, like, we don't even know what the secret is. So, like, she was mm-hmm. just doing her due diligence. Because like, it could have been like, oh, she told me that she... I don't know. She paid five cents more for carrots. Yeah. <laughs> what a goose. Also, what are you saying in that conversation? You say, oh, yeah, the widow told me a big secret. Bye. <laughs> just walked away. <laughs> How interesting. Will you excuse me? <laughs> Was that my husband calling? I've got to go. Oh, I, have, I have a headache. I'm sorry. I'm going to go, go, go get, get some firewood. <laughs> a case of the vipers. I need to go and dose myself with some cocaine for this migraine. God. Okay, so yes, it's time for Brom to try for a hero moment. So he decides he's going to engage the horseman as he tries to get away. And Ichabod is there and he decides he's going to help out. And we get this fantastic sword axe fight on the bridge, even though Ichabod tells Brom, hey, man, you don't need to do this because he doesn't want you. But Brom's got to be a hero, and he ends up getting sliced in half. Yeah, it's it's a long shot. So again, it, it, it's gory. Like you see the two halves fall apart, but it's not like we're not seeing intestines spill out. Yeah. Um, I actually really like the moment where we hear the footsteps as they're looking down, like through the um the covered bridge, mm-hmm. and then he jumps behind them. <laughs> yeah, I mean. 
we've not talked about Ray Park except to, you know, make fun of the fact that he was Darth Maul. The level of physicality that he manages to imbue in this horseman without the adage of having facial features that he can like he he still manages to make the horseman feel like a proper character with personality yeah uh it, it, it's it's a very imposing figure um mm-hmm. and again like i think too for a lot of this um the collar is often uh cgi yeah. on as well Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. The, in one of those featurettes in the Blu-ray, it's like um, you can see them uh, during the fight with Killian where they have to uh, – because he's he's basically wearing like a blue sack on his head. Mm-hmm. But because of how the blue sack is, like he's, he does have a collar, but they're still like digitally doing something over the collar. Like you can see it moving by itself. Um, right. Okay. But also, yeah, I mean, Brom dying, like uh, toxic masculinity, man, it's going to it's gonna get you killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't need to be anybody's hero, Brom. You could have, you could have gone the investigation route. But also, I mean, it even happens to Ichabod, right? He nearly gets fatally wounded here, but yeah. he gets lucky. Well, it, it, it was, but it's because he's lucky because the sword is cauterized, so it basically cauterized his wound. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if it had gone deeper or something, he yeah, would've... yeah, sure. <laughs> I just, I love that the horseman was like, "Look, y'all, just let me go." <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here for you. What are you doing? Just let me pass. <laughs> but I guess at this point, though, we don't know. We don't know yet that someone's controlling the horseman, or, or do we? No, 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 we don't. It, it's all still. Uh, oh, I took it out of my notes. There's a point where Ichab- I think it's after this that Ichabod figures out that it's not random anymore oh. because he he has to look at the the family tree. Yes, because he's he's like, what do the victims have in common? And then he starts yeah. to, and th- that's when he says someone's controlling the horseman. So, so honestly, yeah. too, that's why if you're watching this the first time and you don't know, oh right, someone because you don't even know you're watching a whodunit. When it's happening, because you just mm-hmm. think, oh, it's just the horseman. Yeah, you think that this thing is just riding into town, killing people, no rhyme or reason. So I think that, honestly, it, some people also might might overlook certain pieces of dialogue because they're not on the lookout for it. Exactly. Yeah. You don't know what kind of movie you're watching until, oh, shit, I'm yeah. watching a whodunit. Yeah. So... Ichabod faints again. <laughs> when he wakes up, Katrina is brewing him what I put in my notes as milk of the poppy. <laughs> ba- basically, right? She's basically just looking to knock him back out so that he can get some rest. And this is where we finally get the resolution of his repressed memories. So, yes, his father murdered his mother by throwing her in the Iron Maiden. And then he was so traumatized that he stepped back and slammed his palms onto, I guess this, I don't know what you would call this chair. A spiky chair. (laughs) Spiky chair. Here, let's see. Spiky chair, medieval torture. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, an iron chair. So we got an iron oh. maiden and an iron chair. <laughs> there we go. So he gets to, I mean, I kind of like this idea that he literally carries his trauma around on his palm sure. for the rest of his life. He can never forget what happened to his mother. And as a result, it drives him to a world of reason and science. Yep. I do also I mean, like, I, I like the, um, like the scars on his hand. I think it's a cool mm-hmm. little look. Yeah, yeah. It's understated. It's not something that we go back to a billion times. We show it once, and if you forget about it, you'll remember it after you see child version of him do it here. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, we're doing more stuff where they're falling in love, but when he wakes up again, she's gone, and he's being tended to by the lady of the house, which is 
strange. Her, like, second line of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's almost easy to forget that this is a character in the film because she's not been seen in quite some time. Well, and that's a thing, too, because if you're an American in 1999, you don't really know Miranda Richardson from American films. So mm-hmm. it's a, and she's not a character actress. She's an actress um, with a capital A. <laughs> um, but also by this point, she's already killed the servant girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, that's why she's tending to Ichabod, because Sarah has mysteriously disappeared. So hard to find good help these days. <laughs> so this is when Ichabod remembers to look at the Van Garrett family tree. So he and young Masbeth visit the notary, and this is where it starts to unravel trace. So yeah. we realize that four of the elders, the magistrate, the doctor, the notary, and the reverend. The reverend, thank you. Mm-hmm. They all knew about Van Garrett's secret marriage and baby to the widow Winship. And of course, the document we saw at the beginning of the film was him bequeathing his fortune in a new will to the widow. Which pissed off his son. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, rightfully so. Dad, you've known this woman for how long? And so basically, that's the whole thing. So when the son wouldn't sign to be a witness on the will, he had to bring in Masbeth, which is how Masbeth was connected. And so yes. they all had to die. But then all these men, all these elders, again, like... Phillips is dead because he helped out Ichabod. Reverend is in Lady Mantas's palm because he's fucking her. Um, the doctor is in her palm because he's been fucking Sarah, although not anymore. <laughs> and then, yeah, notary just scared shitless. Yeah, all of that. But of course, Ichabod doesn't know any of that just yet. No. So his big thing is, oh, well, who stands to inherit if all of these people die? <gasps> that would be Baltus. Yeah, Baltus Van Tassel. So he goes home and he finds Katrina in his room and she's been looking through some of her things. He also finds a tarantula in a moment that seems just there to be scary and spooky. But the tarantula does reveal that there is an evil eye under his bed. <laughs> also, this Masbeth kid, dude, you should read that book because clearly it's not the evil eye. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a spell of protection. But if you think about the fact that no one likes witchcraft or they don't trust witches, you wouldn't be reading anything about this. So this just looks like a pentagram. <laughs> I feel like, though, you would. And I think I said it's because I feel like you would assume Oh, God, I don't know. I guess are you do you think some people are watching this going, oh, it's the mom. The mom's doing this. She, she She's uh, uh, doing this stuff under his bed. As, but, no. which, I, I truly do think that you're I mean, it is Katrina who's doing it. Yeah. We'll find out eventually. But I think you're not meant to know the difference between different types of witchcraft or how people are using it. So, yeah, we sure. see Katrina in there. Then we discover the eye. One plus one equals two. And of course, she's pissed off because she's like, uh, my father's not the bad guy. <laughs> yes. So they end up following Lady Van Tassel. This is where they see her fucking the reverend, marking him with her blood. His face, though, when he watches this happen, he, he almost mm-hmm. gags a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, ew, no, don't fuck the sex past Jeffrey Jones is gross. Oh, God. Also, the wig he's wearing this entire movie is just horrendous. It's real bad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is uh, turn of the 19th century, so we've got a lot of men with ponytails. God, yeah. (laughs) So this is when Ichabod confronts Katrina. She is burning his evidence, 
which not evidence. It's a couple of pages of scattered notes in a ledger he's got. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they quarrel because she doesn't believe it's her father. He does. So she ends up riding off and getting very angry. And when he goes back to the Van Tassel house, he does everything he can not to look at Lady Van Tassel's hand wound, because, of course, that's how she got the blood on the reverend. I think this is a really fun conversation, though. Like, she's, like, on his ass. Constable, you have not asked me what I did to my hand. I know you saw me last night. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is really where... All of a sudden, she was out of the film for, what, an hour? And now Mm -hmm. she's in nearly back-to-back scenes. So if you're not starting to suspect that something is going on with this woman, I mean, at this point, you just think, oh, she's an adulterer. She's not a very nice lady. But it's more than that. I think that's a better way of throwing us off her scent than the the off-screen, quote-unquote, death. I I think so, too. Because I think by this point, if you are starting to suspect her, then you're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's just a slut. (laughs) She's a slut. Just she like her mother. a horseman. <laughs> uh, this is also when we learned that the notary Hardenbrook has killed himself. And yeah, it's a total throwaway line. It almost feels like we could not get Michael go for whatever reason. I guess. I guess. Um, but yeah, if you were paying attention to names, you're not going to know who that is. <laughs> He basically just doesn't appear for the rest of the film, whereas the others do. So process of elimination. Well, they're all about to die. So this is true. But first we had to go to the woods. So uh, this is where we get this kind of side flashback. This is just for the audience for the purposes of a misdirect. (laughs) So we see Baltus taking his wife out so she can find herbs for her hand. And then we see the horseman advance on her. And then the very next scene is him rushing to the church saying, the horseman has killed my wife off screen. Okay, I also, because this is clearly, you know, set up by her. Um, Yes. I want, I want to know, I want to see the conversation she was having with the horse. She's like, okay, look, listen, my husband's going to like, bring me outside to get some flowers. And I want you to come up behind me and just pull your sword out. He'll run away, though. It's going to be fine. And then stop. <laughs> yeah, because when we see her performing this spell and talking to the horseman yeah. later, it's very florid. It's purple prose, nearly. So this idea that she could say, advance on me, but don't kill me and make sure that my husband runs away. <laughs> Okay, lady. So I did watch the commentary. It's it's just Tim Burton in the commentary. Um, honestly, not particularly lively. He seems kind of bored throughout a lot of it. I mean, if you've ever heard Tim Burton speak, he seems so low energy. It's yeah. kind of surprising. But apparently when she was doing her spell to rise the horse, like, she did like several different takes of it in like entirely different ways. Oh, I know. I, I want to see like a super cut. Where <laughs> are these scenes? This is the thing I'll never understand. I love physical media. I love special features. Love an audio commentary and all that. But whenever they talk about things and then it's not on there, yeah. I just think, I know you filmed that. Where is it? I, know. I want to see it. I know. Just like to see Miranda Richardson just go hog wild, like doing a bunch of different campy incantations. Yes. <laughs> Missed opportunities. Yeah. Okay, so we're at the church. Everyone is freaked the fuck out, but we're on hallowed ground. So the horseman cannot get on. So he's stomping away. I love how you can read the agitation in the horse and the horseman. Yeah. 
Just the and body language, right? Yeah, it's just in the physicality of the performance. But inside, people are losing their fucking shit. So this is where we drop a bunch of characters in quick succession. So Katrina starts drawing... The men are shooting at the Hessian through the windows, and then Dr. Lancaster is beaten to death by a crucifix, by the Reverend, and then he is shot by Voltus immediately afterwards. He just goes up the stairs and is like, stop it! Ah, I'm Baltus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we don't have... I'll confess, I don't fully know what Baltus's role in the town is, but he's de facto mayor as the rich guy. Right? Yeah. So he's trying to instill a sense of law and order, but also he doesn't trust any of these motherfuckers because he just shot a man in cold blood and they want to advance on him with some mob vigilante justice. Um, in a church, no less. In a church. And then this is when I guess he gets his own version of crucifixion. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, um, his title is wealthy businessman. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I don't know how they filmed this. I have to believe they must have sped it up a little bit. Yeah. But when he gets impaled and then dragged out through the window, it looks hyper accelerated. The um the the, cru- the 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 piece of wood like going through him and like just the burst of blood you get. Mm-hmm. That's very hammery. I also love it's it, a it's, chest burster. It's it's so unnecessary, but it's like um the shot of Christina Ricci where she just holds her hands up and she does it like that blood curdling scream. Mm-hmm. That feels like it's like in another type of movie too. But I I, I I like it. It works here. It's just it's just it's just so over the top. Well in the making of featurette Richie actually says that's her favorite scene. She loved getting to do the scream. It was her favorite part. Oh, I'm sure. Honestly, if you're an actress, hell yeah. Like, I want to do that too. Mm-hmm. I love the workaround that the horseman gets for getting to for being able to get Baltus off the hollowed ground. He just uh-huh. pulls the head through the fence. <laughs> yep. It's like a game of croquet. It's so funny. <laughs> yep. So we have taken out all of these elders in one fell swoop, and we've got Baltus's head. So he's done. There's a really good overhead shot, too, because Katrina faints. So like, oh, we start kind of on Baltus's, like, like the, 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 the pyre he was standing on. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, we just kind of shift over as we're, like, going to this uh, evil eye. I think it's a great shot. I, again, overhead shots. Love them. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it's fun to compare this to Bound from two weeks ago, right? Where there's so much power and movement to cinema when you do something like a well-staged overhead. Hell yes. So, after all of this bloodshed... Ichabod finally realizes, oh, Katrina was the one who was casting these spells, so he believes... That it was her who was <laughs> controlling the Hessian. So he ends up burning or or getting rid of most of his evidence. And he does not say goodbye to her because she's still unconscious after the death of her father. <laughs> but it's on the way out of town in the carriage that he sees the decapitated body of Lady Van Tassel with the telltale mark on her hand. He circles back, takes a look at that corpse, and, hmm, this hand has not healed at all, which means the mark was made after she died. Yep, which is impossible. I also that's the only reason she cut her hand in that sex scene, too. Like, I guess the Reverend had, like, a blood kink, and she was like, (laughs) oh, two birds, one stone. (laughs) I don't think it was a blood kink. I think that was... That was blood magic. She needed blood on him to make him do her will. No, I know, but he didn't seem to care. He's, like, fucking, like, rubbing her wound all over his face. (laughs) Is that rain? What's that on my back? No, no, because he, he like, kisses her hand, too, and it's, like, all over his face. Oh. 
Yeah, okay. You know what? He's a kinky motherfucker. Um, but I do love that this is kind of because we're about to get the reveal, you know, where you know, Christina Ricci is like just sitting in that chair and she looks, and we have the, yep. P- we're at the POV from Lady Van Tassel, which I really, uh-huh. really like. The dress she is wearing, this yes. spider web dress. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> just in case you didn't know she was a villain, folks, she is literally dressing the part. So she just comes out of the shadows and she's like, hey, bitch, I'm still alive. And now it's <laughs> Katrina's turn to faint again <laughs> <laughs> i mean everybody gotta be fainting in these movies i mean so. that's why ichabod and kachina are meant for each other because they're both fainters god they're like fainting goats <laughs> which p.s if you have never seen a fainting goat it's the funniest thing is it the ones where like they, 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 their legs lock right their legs lock but like they fully lose consciousness so you can watch them fall over and it happens at the slightest oh sharp my God. noise. <laughs> Folks, if you've never seen this YouTube, it, it's kind of hilarious. It's basically their defense mechanism. It's literally playing dead, only they're fainting. It's very amusing. Yeah. <laughs> so we're now up to the villain monologue. We're at the windmill. Lady Van Tassel is about to call the Hessian to kill Katrina. But first, she needs to explain everything about why she did it mm-hmm. so um yeah i feel like we've covered nearly all of this except we do learn that yeah she killed sarah earlier because you know it was like you said two birds with one stone but then also she did kill her twin sister and i do love the kind of backstory that she used to live in katrina's house so the the burnt down house with the archer hearth that used to be her house and then the Van Garretts kicked her off, so they were the evil landlords, and then the Van Tassels moved in, so she hated both of the richest families, and that's why she did this revenge plan. Yeah, so the Van Tassels, and so, because she did kill the mother, right? Uh, it, her mother, or Katrina's mother? Katrina's mother, because I- Yeah, she did. Okay, 100%, yes, Well, I mean, she- it sounded like maybe she was already getting sick, but then I can't help but imagine that she helped that along. Yeah. But she goes to this whole fucking, like, let's go through every murder in this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you why they had to die. <laughs> yep. They all had to go. They all she, had to go. But she finishes, and Christina, she's just on her back, like, sitting up on her arm. She's like, yeah, you have everything now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I guess you're done, right? But no, my dear, you do. But again, I'm just like, okay, why don't you just kill her now? Like, why mm-hmm. Why are you waiting for the horseman to come and kill her? You've already decapitated two people. Yeah, it's definitely a plot contrivance so that we can get to this very exciting windmill fire and then chase through the woods back to the tree of the death. All good stuff. But yeah, I mean, if we hadn't seen Lady Van Tassel already get her hands dirty, this would make more sense. Yeah. Um, I do love the more interesting it's to have some like really fun head puns. So like, I mean, not even a pun. Like whenever uh, Mazma shows up, she's like, you know, you're just in time to have your head cut off. However, when they all run into the windmill and she's like, watch your head. Watch your head. (laughs) That was an ad lib from Miranda Richardson. (laughs) Oh, and that's the best one of all. It's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, it's it's a lot of action for the next little while, right? So we're climbing up. I love that there's, I think, bags of flour is what we use to set this windmill aflame. I think so. And it's really good stuff. It's exciting stuff. We're knocking the horsemen down. I think the explosion of this windmill looks so good. It's obviously a miniature on a matte backdrop. And... 
it's fantastic. Yeah, but they, I mean, at least for when they're climbing, hey, like these are the actors like actually climbing on a windmill that's like on fire. Um, mm-hmm. The actual thing it was about thirty feet high and twenty five feet wide, but it was a it was a sixty foot tall forced perspective exterior that was visible to highway travelers miles away. <sighs> wow. Okay. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, th- th- this is real. I love when they climb on the sails and the windmill. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, oh, yay. But honestly, this fucking coach chase, man, I. It's really good. This is neat as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes not in unexpected directions, but we find innovative ways to extend it and make it exciting. So, uh, you know, Ichabod getting knocked off and falling onto the horseman's horse mm-hmm. and then realizing the horseman is already onto the carriage and we're getting dragged. And then the the image of the cart flipping yeah. into the woods in slow motion is amazing. And like landing on top of the horseman. It's oh yeah, uh-huh. this is this is all fantastic. Close calls with the sword almost hitting Ichabod, backing uh-huh. up, moving forward, like oh yeah. This, this is just this is just fun as hell. <laughs> so we end up on foot, of course, at this point. We're running to the tree of the dead. Lady Van Tessel's already there. <laughs> it's like, I've been waiting for you. Where you been? Uh, she's like, still alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so she shoots Ichabod in the heart. Of course, that's where the spell book will come into play in yeah. a little bit. Young Masbeth is trying to beam her with a branch. Uh, Ichabod tosses the horseman his skull because she's gotten distracted and she's dropped it at this point. And this happens right before the horseman is about to kill Katrina. The head reanimates, so Christopher Walken is back briefly. And of course, because he has this head back, he's not being controlled Oh, he's anymore. pissed off. <laughs> he's... I think pissed off, but also sees a kindred spirit. And now that she's age appropriate, uh, he can take her as his bride. Okay, but what do you make of this blood kiss, though? Like, this is... So this is one of those moments you said, oh, this movie's mean. Uh-huh. And I think this is mean. It's obviously very gross, but I just think it leans into the undercurrent of weird deviant sexuality right in this movie. like i mean because he, he he just bites into her lips with this open mm-hmm. mouth kiss it is it's wild <laughs> yeah. it's the perfect synthesis of what we know of the hessian though right you know we we heard that he had a blood lust and that's why he was so fond of just killing people willy-nilly all the time so this idea that he would see that in her and actually act on that lust by producing blood by biting off the bottom half of her face. Mm. Good stuff. I wish she, like, got a line in. Like, she just screams, and then it's like, it's done. I I wish she got something more to say or do here. It is a little underwhelming. She's kind of flailing her arms a little bit, but it is very muffled. There's no dialogue, right? And then we're just jumping into the tree. Yeah, which, granted, though, does look cool, and then blood just, like, flies out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I always thought that he took her to hell, but we see her hands sticking out and all that blood suggests that she just got crushed right um i would no i believe that she's in hell maybe her arm just got left behind he's missing a head she's missing an arm there we go yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so after all of this ichabod faints one last time (laughs) and then we have your favorite epilogue yeah, so it's the three of them. They've left behind Sleepy Hollow. Everybody's trussed up. 
it's impossible not to spot the Beetlejuice referencing Dude, Christina Ricci's dress. It, it, it looks so out of place in, in this setting, but it you, just, it, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cute as a bit of a head nod. It feels too after the fact. Like, if we were going to do this, I almost wish we had done it at the beginning when she was introduced or something. Yeah. But I don't know. Everything about this just feels very tongue in cheek in a way and maybe this is just because I was listening to another podcast that had covered it, it reminds me a bit of the end of The Faculty, where it's just this unearned, saccharine, happy ending that doesn't feel like it matches the characters we've come to love over the course of the film. Yeah, it's it's just a forced... I mean, what, 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 what did you say earlier? The, the nuclear family, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's whatever. Like, like what... what, what? <sighs> it's a very pat, happy ending, but even this idea that I mean, I guess, yeah, they have nothing left in Sleepy Hollow, except for the fact that she would be fucking rich. <laughs> well, that's why they're in New York. I mean, is he marrying her for the money? I'm going to say why? yes. And young <laughs> Masbeth is now going to be young Van Tassel or Crane or whatever. I mean, it's super weird. Yeah, unless they're taking this kid on as an actual child like they're going to raise him maybe if they're because he's fully carrying all the bags so i'm just like cool there is no class critique here or at least not one that the film is saying is bad because he is definitely an indentured surf why well, but maybe maybe it's an apprenticeship sure sure you know what that is very generous it's a nice uh, it's we'll a nice way that. of saying indentured service mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like an apprenticeship like an internship you're not going to get paid but you know it'll look great on your resume and um yeah <laughs> it's like indentured servant is the pc version of slave and then <laughs> <Literally>. <laughs> apprentice is the pc version of indentured servant <laughs> <laughs> you know through the time back in the 1799 this was all totally fine <laughs> So I got to finish with a single quote from someone else. So okay. uh, I read an interesting piece. If you want to think a little bit more about the way that gender is represented between the various characters, this was a nice read. It's about five pages. It's accessible outside of academic institutions. Mm -hmm. It's written by Susan Bernardo called The Bloody Battle of the Sexes in Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow from Literature slash Film Quarterly. And it's near the end of the article. She says, Sleepy Hollow joins masculine and feminine, emotion and reason in a process which requires the deaths of 10 people after the arrival of Constable Crane in the town. The confluence of all of these forces overwhelms the victims, sacrificing them to achieve the joining of Ichabod and Katrina. Oh, <laughs> So it's like, basically, to get this happy ending, this love story, we had to go through 10 bodies. But most, well, I would say most of them are men, but we got two women, well, three women, four women, mm. uh, yeah, half of them are women. <laughs> you know what? You nearly got there. Nearly I, mean, got I, got, there. I got there in the end. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it, it, it sucks to say this, but, I, you know, it's a mainstream studio horror film coming out uh -huh. in 1999. Yeah, it, it was always going to have a pat ending, this kind of forced romantic relationship. I can't say it's not there because they're both romantic figures, and it is very befitting of less so the hammer horror, but definitely the gothic romance that we're seeing between them. Yeah. So it's not that it doesn't fit. I just don't like it yeah. for these characters. It feels 
not tacked on, but yeah, I think unearned. I think I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, again, it's a minor gripe in a movie that I have so much like fun with and so much respect for, but exactly. But I feel yeah. you on that. The pros outweigh the cons so much in this movie. It's gorgeous. It's fun. Regardless of how you feel about Tim Burton or Johnny Depp or Jeffrey Jones, <laughs> if if you can kind of set aside some of their real life histories, this movie is honestly, it's just so fun. And to kick off Halloween season with it, it sets just the right mood. Yeah. And I do think this is the last Tim Burton movie, too, where I'm like, you would watch it and be like, oh, yeah, that's a Tim Burton movie. Or that's a Tim Burton movie in a good way. Yes. I'm sorry. I just really don't like his recent output. But I will say I've seen some positive things apart from the whiteness or the, the racial casting of Wednesday. But that seemed like it was maybe him starting to get back to the Tim Burton that we used to really enjoy. And that gives me hope for Beetlejuice, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we'll find out on Patreon in about a year. <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right, everyone. Well, that has been Sleepy Hollow. Before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers, or shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's back in October. Come on. Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's October. Please. Spooky season means good things to say about us. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's, that's how it works. <laughs> and if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you'll get about 264 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on It Lives Inside, No One Will Save You, Totally Killer, Saw 10, and Exorcist Believer. And our audio commentary for the month will be on John Carpenter's classic 1978 slasher, Halloween. 45 years, Trace. 45 years! Oh my god! Oh, but speaking of classics, uh, Joe, mm -hmm. <laughs> what are we talking about next week? <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that this aligned is so fantastic. We've got a Friday, the 13th in October, folks. So it's time to break out Jason Voorhees from the vault. We're going to talk about Friday the 13th, part two. Part two, the only Friday the 13th film that I think is genuinely scary. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to revisit this because I definitely watched it when the, what is it, the Screen Factory, the, box the set. big box set yeah. came out. And... I liked it a lot, so I'm excited to see if it holds up. It's very simple, but there's a few really good touches in that climax that I'm just like, oh, yeah, like this This kind of nails what I want from this franchise. Mm -hmm. And but, we've got a gay actor in the mix. Yes, we do. Um, but until next week, we can cross out Sleepy Hollow. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.